How would Peter, James, and John have processed all that they saw, all that they heard, all that they experienced in this incredible mystery that we call the Transfiguration? They would have done so as Jewish men steeped since their childhood in the Jewish scriptures and Jewish tradition. In ascending the mountain with Jesus, which today, by the way, we call Mount Tabor, they would have seen the parallel with Moses ascending Mount Sinai to receive the law, the Torah, from God. When Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light, this was the uncreated light of God radiating through his son's flesh and clothing, which is exactly what the icons attempt to capture, that this light of the, this uncreated light of God radiating through matter. Jesus' appearance would have reminded the three disciples of how Moses' face shined so brightly when he descended from Mount Sinai carrying the tablets of the law recorded in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35, that the people were frightened of Moses. And Moses had to wear a veil to cover his face when he was with the people, removing it only when he spoke to God in the tent of meeting. The whiteness of Jesus' clothing would have reminded the disciples of the account of the Ancient One, as recorded in the book of the prophet Daniel. In seeing Moses and Elijah, they saw the giver of the Torah, the law, and the prophet who was believed would return to herald the coming of Messiah. But Peter, James, and John would have also interpreted this to mean that the time was coming, the time was imminent, when all the nations will now stream to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. As told by the prophet Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 20, and the prophet Hosea chapter 12, verse 9. So powerful in Judaism is this end-of-time hope that it is commemorated annually, then and today, in the Jewish feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. People make what are called sukkahs, flimsy little shacks, just enough sunlight to come through, but not enough to keep the rain out. And people, whole families, would live in the sukkahs for eight days, eat in the sukkahs to celebrate for eight days. Peter wanted to make three of these tabernacles, these sukkahs, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, correctly interpreting what he saw as history coming to its climax, the time of prophetic fulfillment for the arrival of Meshua, Messiah, the Christ. And the bright cloud casting a shadow over them Hearing the voice of God would have reminded the disciples of the cloud that appeared before the chosen people as they wandered through the wilderness as recorded in the book of Exodus and in the sanctuary in Jerusalem 
as recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. But this was not an ordinary cloud of nature, but rather the divine presence himself. And this is why the disciples, rightly so, were very much afraid. Earlier in the Gospel, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Peter made his confession of faith to Jesus, saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Every element of the transfiguration confirms this reality. As remarkable as the transfiguration must have been, as profound in a set of experiences they had to be for Peter, James, and John, its effects were short-lived. Now, how do we know this? James and John, along with all the other disciples, would later on go on to squabble about who was going to be more important in the kingdom. Peter would deny Jesus three times. Almost all of them, with the exception of John, abandoned Jesus when he was on the cross. And this all begs the question, how could their experiences of the transfiguration, interpreted through their knowledge of the Jewish scriptures and tradition, have allowed them to do such things? There is no doubt that they respected Jesus, admired Jesus, spellbound by Jesus' teaching that reduced his opponents to silence. I have no doubt they liked Jesus a great deal. They were excited by all of Jesus' miracles. Their presence at the transfiguration was to prepare them for the scandal of the cross. The light of the transfiguration was to counter the coming darkness of the crucifixion and the tomb. And yet, despite their incredible experiences of the holy, they lacked one thing necessary to weave all those experiences together. They did not yet love Jesus. And this is where we need to ask ourselves if at times perhaps we are like they were, a disciple who does not love Jesus is merely a follower, not a companion of the Lord. None of us in this church were immersed in the bright cloud of the divine presence. But we were each immersed in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus in our baptism. We were filled with his light. We were made sons and daughters of the Father through the Son. We each have an eternal dignity but do we allow those realities to compel us to love Jesus 
and express that love by how we make our relationship with him central in our lives? Or have we at times allowed ourselves to treat him as just one more thing we have to try to squeeze in with so many other things that are competing for our attention? Or something we turn to on, you know, for a wedding or a funeral or maybe Christmas and Easter? Do we accept the grace to make our worship of Jesus at Mass a priority where we hear his living voice in the gospel as surely as Peter, James, and John heard the voice of the Father at the Transfiguration? Does the reality that we are graced to receive the true body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus who revealed his divine nature compel us to reflect on what an incredible love he has for each of us? Or do we allow other things, perhaps unnecessary things, perhaps even sinful things, to take priority? It's a good reflection for Lent. Like the disciples, we might know the scriptures, but knowledge without love is just knowledge. It's a bunch of disconnected facts. Trivia. Love turns knowledge into the wisdom we need to order our lives correctly as genuine disciples and achieve all the potential that the Lord sees in each of us.